chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 this morning. Luke chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 26 through 38 this morning. Whenever you're reading the Bible, one of the most important questions I think we can be ready to ask of any passage of Scripture is this simple question. What does this passage of Scripture tell me about God? Sounds simple on the surface, but it's actually very profound. What does this passage of Scripture I'm about to read, or that I've just read, what does it tell me about who God is? The reason that question is really important is because we believe every single verse in this Bible points to God's plans and purposes of redemption progressing forward through time. So from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the Bible speaks of God's plan and purpose. And in every succession of moments through this plan and purpose, God is showing us who He is and what He's like. One of the ways that we express that here at Riverview on a frequent basis is we say God is the main character, right? And we're supporting characters. So whenever we look at a passage of Scripture, one of the questions that we can ask is, what does this passage of Scripture tell me about who God is? Now, one of the exciting things about Christmas is Christmas, and especially the narratives that we're going to be reading this morning, the story, really gives us an incredibly clear window into seeing a kind of spike, a key development in not only God's plan and purpose of redemption in the Bible, but also a window of clarity into seeing how beautiful and how glorious God really is. The one thing that I want you to walk away with this morning is this very simple thing. The birth of Christ helps you and I behold God rightly. The one idea I'm going to spend the rest of our time this morning developing is this. The birth of Jesus that we're going to read about in a moment helps you and me see God for who he really, really is. I want to show you this in the Bible from Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26, going down through verse 38. As is our custom, would you please stand to your feet with me as we honor the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 1 starting in verse 26. And let's behold our God together in these verses. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man who was named Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David." And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? 
And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us. Would you please pray with me, church? Father God, in these moments, we pray that you would remove distraction, that you would illumine our minds to understand your word. God, would you give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have to say to us? And as we hear this morning, God, would you help us not just be hearers of your word, God, but would you help us be doers of your word as well? In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You can be seated. I want to show you four dimensions of who God is from the narrative we just read. If the birth of Christ helps us see God rightly, I want to show you four dimensions of who God is in this text. Number one, I want to show you the love of God. I want to show you God's love in these verses. In the first scene of the story, verses 26 through 33, we see this exchange between the angel Gabriel and Mary. Now, presumably, Gabriel, ministering in the presence of God Almighty, was sent by God to Mary to communicate a message to her. And what we see in this moment, as I mentioned a moment ago, is a key development in God's plans and purposes to bring about the redemption of humankind. Because what we see when God sends Gabriel to Mary, the reason we see God's love is because we see God initiating redemption for you and for me. You see, one of the really beautiful facets of love and affection we show for one another is when we initiate love towards another person by helping them with something that they don't even see that they have a need for yet. What's so beautiful about God's love is that he initiates, he moves on our behalf before you and I ever even know that we have a problem. This happens a lot in the Plumley household right now because I have an 11-month-old little girl, okay? And what started to happen in our house is our little girl is crawling all over the place. Parents, what happens when your little infant starts crawling? You have to child-proof your house, right? You have to make sure there aren't things they could pick up and put in their mouth. You have to be careful they're not sticking their fingers into things that are going to electrocute them, right? The whole house becomes a death trap uh, in a a matter of moments as your child begins to crawl, right? And so what am I doing? When I see Paige crawling and I see her going for something that I know is going to hurt her, before she ever gets to that, do you know what I'm going over and doing? I'm picking that thing up, right? Right? putting it on a shelf out of her reach, or I'm picking her up and moving her around. The reality is, Paige has no idea what I'm doing for her, right? She has no idea the protection I'm providing for her. This is one of the reasons why I think Jesus likened our relationship to God like a child to a parent, 
Because just as Paige really has no idea of how much I love her and how much I care for her, I believe you and I just have a thimble kind of idea of how much God loves us and cares for us. Because what we see with Gabriel coming to Mary is God is saying, I'm not waiting for you to figure out you've got a problem with sin. You're never going to understand it. You're never going to fully grasp what your problem is. I'm going to send help to you before you even realize you've got a problem. That's what God does for us. The love God shows you and me is an initiatory love that moves and acts before we even see our problem. But God's love is even deeper than that. God's love not only initiates with us, God's love doesn't just give us a word or a message. God gives us himself. Now think about that with me for a moment. The word of God is powerful. God spoke the world that we live in right now, the the air you're breathing, the the building we're sitting in, the, the, the creation that we behold with our eyes. God spoke all of those things into existence with just a word. That's how powerful God is. But when God decides to love you and me, God goes beyond just a word of power. God gives us the living word, who is Jesus. God gives us himself. And this is really important because what God is tapping into, God's tapping into the way you and I are wired and made. You and I are made and wired for relationship. One of the heartbreaking things for me as a pastor is to watch how busy we've become as Americans. We are busier than we've probably ever been. And one of the reasons I say that it's heartbreaking is because I see this this scenario play itself out over and over again in families. Two people are working so hard to provide a living, to provide uh, material comforts, to provide a house, to provide cars, to provide stuff that will bless their family, that they get so busy doing those things that once they're older and they look up and they've got all these things, they don't have a relationship with the other person worth salvaging. And the reason for that is because they get so busy trying to keep up, so busy trying to get the next thing that they've forgotten that what they need most is to spend time with one another. And if the very things they're running after are pulling them away from each other, it doesn't matter how big their house is or how nice their car is. They don't have any relationship to build on. I see this over and over and over again in families. One of the needs we have is for relationships, husbands and wives, parents and children. There's a need for time spent together to cultivate and develop connection. That's because we've been wired for relationship. So here's what's so great about God. God knows this because he made us. God knows this because he fashions us. And so what God gives us is the opportunity for relationship with him. God parts the heavens. He moves the skies apart. He brings us his son into existence. Fully God, taking on human flesh. Jesus, this little baby, enters the world and says, I'm here not just with a word, I'm here giving you myself. There have been times in my marriage where Shelley says, I'm not looking for the next thing. We don't have to do something special on our date. I just want to spend time with you. One of our family friends here at the lake watched our kids on on Friday. It was Shelley's birthday on Friday, December 23rd. And they said, what are you going to do? We said, we're going to go and look at each other and just talk. 
We're just going to spend time together. Are you going to go see a movie? No, because then we're just looking at a screen. We're not talking to each other. We need that relationship and connection. God knows that what we really need is a relationship and right standing with him. And so that is, that's what he offers us. Here's the point of what Christmas and the birth of Christ shows us about the love of God. This is a God who shows us real love and kindness. Now, I use the word real love because I do think we've got to redeem the word love. When we talk about love, we're not just talking about feelings or emotions or highs that we might experience throughout our lives. We're talking about someone setting their affections, choosing to set their affections on another person. What this tells us, what this first thing of the story tells us, that as Gabriel comes to Mary, he's telling us that God is deciding to set his affections on humans. Now here's why that's so important for you and for me. You and I get to spend our lives experiencing the love of God. Did you know that what God offers you is an experience daily of his love for you? Which is why I want to ask you this question. If that's true, I want to ask you, are you daily experiencing the love of God? If God offers you love, if what God gives you is his love and his mercy in Jesus, moving heaven and earth to come to us, are you experiencing the love of God? And please understand me when I say this. What I mean by that is you have an opportunity to be reminded both in your thinking and in your feeling that God loves me. One of the ways that you can do that in your life practically is starting your day not by asking, how am I feeling? What have I got going on today? But to start your day by asking this simple question, God, why are you so good to me? Whether you and I experience or not, God's love is a present, active, ongoing force that he shows us in Jesus for those of us that know him every single day. Number two. Second way this passage of Scripture shows us who God is, is it shows us the genius of God. The angel tells Mary that Jesus is coming, that she's going to have a son, and she asks a legitimate question. Look in your Bibles at verse 34. Mary says to the angel, How will this be? How am I, a virgin who's ever been with a man physically, how am I going to have a child? Verse 35, the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. What these passages of Scripture teach is the doctrine of the virgin birth and the incarnation. What God is telling Mary through Gabriel is this, Mary... You're right, you've never been with a man physically, but the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to work in your life in such a way that you are miraculously going to conceive without having ever been with a man physically. Now, I don't know if I need to go over biology 101, the birds and the bees, but typically the only way children come into the world is if two people are involved, right? There's going to be a husband, there's going to be a man, there's going to be a woman. There's going to be two people involved. What God is saying is that he's going to miraculously work in Mary's life in such a way that what's going to happen is she's going to have a child, miraculously, powerfully, but this child won't just be any child. Look at what your Bible says in verse 35. He'll be holy, the Son of God. Now, one of the confusing phrases we see all throughout the Bible is this phrase, Son of God. 
What it doesn't mean is that Jesus is somehow less than God. When, when it uses the phrase son of God, what it's emphasizing is that Jesus is made of the same stuff as God. Have you ever heard the phrase like father, like son? When you hear that phrase, son of God, you're hearing the biblical author say, Jesus is made of the same stuff as God. So here's what that tells us. Jesus, when he comes to the earth, is going to be fully human. When he's lying in that manger, he's got a human nature. That means he experiences emotions. He experiences pain, difficulty, just like you and I do as humans. But Jesus is also having a divine nature. Now, he may deny some of his abilities as God, as he enters this incarnation. But what we know is that Jesus is one person, two natures, fully God and fully human. What Christmas is all about is seeing that what God is doing through Mary is he's bringing Jesus into the world in such a way that he is one person with two natures. Now, here's what's so cool about this. God's genius plan is such when we recognize that human beings have a problem that only God can solve. You see the beauty of the incarnation when you recognize that human beings have a problem, sin, that only God can solve. Okay, so what's our problem? Our problem is the law. The Ten Commandments confront us and say, you've lied, you've stolen, you've disobeyed your parents, you've worshipped false gods. You could go through all ten of them and say, I've broken all of those. And because we've broken those Ten Commandments, the law of God, we deserve a penalty of death. That penalty is on humanity's account. It must be paid on humanity's account. The problem is, there's never been a human being, past, present, or future, that could ever meet all Ten Commandments in thought attitude and action. Only God is the one who is perfect. So human beings own a debt, owe a debt that only God can pay. So what does God do? God takes on human flesh. And as a human being, he's able to pay on our account. But as God and as perfect, he's able to meet the righteous requirements of the law that we can't meet for ourselves. Human beings owe a debt to God that only he can pay, so God comes to us as a human. Let me try to illustrate this for us to help us get our minds around this, okay? Um, How many of you have ever had a friend or a family member or someone you know need some kind of donor transplant? How many of you know somebody in your family or friend circle? Several of you do. Doctor comes to a family member of yours or to yourself and says, your kidney is gone. I was talking to somebody just before the service. You're going to need a new kidney. Okay, so what do they do? You've got to go through these battery of tests to figure out what you're looking for in a kidney. And they put you on this donor transplant list, right? And what's so challenging about this is they've got to find someone that has the exact right match to you, right? You're looking at blood type and genetics and age and and their health background. There's all these factors that go into that. So that when you find a match, it's almost miraculous, right? Because you need someone that just has to fit just this profile to a T so that when that organ is taken from their body and put into yours, your body accepts it and doesn't reject it. What God is doing for you and for me is saying, you need a spiritual transplant. Your heart needs to be transplanted with a new living heart of flesh. A spiritual transplant, you need that. Jesus Christ is the only one on the donor transplant list to save you and to give you this new heart. 
Jesus, by coming fully God, fully man, meets our need for a new heart perfectly. He's the only one that matches up for what you and I need. So when he's lying in that manger, the reason it's so important that we see how glorious it is is because the manger sets off some spiritual dominoes that lead to our redemption. You guys know dominoes, right? You knock over one domino, the next falls over, so that the next falls over, that the next falls over, right? The manger is where God becomes man, human God fully in one person. The cross is where Jesus pays our penalty as a human being on our account, but as God perfectly meeting the requirements for us. Jesus dies in our place as an innocent substitute, but that's only possible because he's fully God and fully man. This leads to the resurrection where Jesus as fully God triumphs over death once and for all, and finally his ascension, the last domino that we're living in right now, where he ascends back to the right hand of the Father, and still, I believe Jesus is still in heaven, fully God, fully man, interceding for us. Do you see the genius of what God is doing? God, when he puts the manger together, is saying the manger leads to the cross, which leads to the resurrection, which leads to Jesus interceding for us right now. Somebody needs to say amen there. Like, that's incredible, unbelievable what God is doing. And he puts this plan in motion from Genesis all the way to Revelation. When we see this, what we recognize is the genius of God is that he's making peace available to you and to me by coming to us fully God and fully human, which leads me to make this statement. What you and I need to see about God when we see his genius is this is a God who gives us real peace. The God that you and I worship, the God of the Bible, is the one who gives us real peace. One of my favorite parts that we don't have time to read this morning, I mentioned it last night at the Christmas Eve service, is the story of the shepherds. When we were gathering together as a family this morning in our house, that's what we read. We read about the birth of Christ in chapter 2 and how Jesus sends the, the, God sends the angels to the shepherds lying on the field. And one of the key phrases we see, the angels declaring to the shepherds and by extension all of creation, all of humankind, is that God is giving us peace through Jesus. And when you think about peace, one of the advantages we have here is the lake, right? When we drive by the lake, the best description I can give you of peace is that peace is this picture of the water being undisturbed. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about the opposite of July 4th here at the lake, right? Where it's like this and crazy and churning. I'm talking about, it looks like glass. It just looks like you could almost walk on it, right? Because it looks so still, so calm. What Jesus offers you and offers me is a peace internally that gives us calmness and rest. Now, please understand, what I'm talking about is not peace with other people. I'm not saying Jesus offers us freedom from all difficulty in our lives. What Jesus offers you and me is he offers us a peace with God. And here's what he says to you and to me. If you have the peace with God that I offer you, you don't need anything else. Because though you may have problems with people at work, though you may even have problems and difficulties in your home, 
Though you may have problems and difficulties as you drive through the streets of our community, you're going to have problems and strife everywhere you go. But if there's this inner peace with God that you have, because you're no longer his enemy and you are now his friend, that's really all that you need. So let me ask you this question. Where are you looking for peace today? Where are you looking for peace? Let me say that a different way to help us process this. Where are you going for an escape from your problems? Think about that with me for a minute. You got problems at home, you got problems at work, you got difficulty in this world. Maybe some of us are particularly frustrated with the current events, political cycle in our country. Whatever that problem is that you're dealing with, where do you go to find escape from problems? Wherever you go to find escape from your problems, that's where you're really looking for peace. So for some of us, the challenge is that, that one of the challenges we're seeing in our culture is that many people are going to substances to try to find peace. Many people I know are going to a bottle or they're going to prescription pills or they're going to some place with medication or with uh, an abuse of a particular substance to try to find escape from all this stuff. Maybe guys, some of the guys in this room, maybe you're going to places on the computer that you know you shouldn't go to look at things that you know you shouldn't look at to find an escape from the stress and the craziness of your world. Maybe some of you are looking for peace in accomplishments. Well, if I, if I can just get this promotion or this next thing, then I'll be there, then my life will be complete. What the Bible is clear about is that we will never find real, lasting peace. Picture that water, that glass in our hearts, unless the peace we look comes from Jesus Christ. And the good news is that's what God offers you in Jesus. He offers you not peace with everybody else. He offers you peace with Christ. Number three, I'm going to show you God's power in this passage of Scripture. God's power. Look at verse 36. It says, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with whom her, with whom. She was called barren, verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now, there are two things we see in this passage that show us God's power. Give us a window to see who God is. Number one, we just finished talking about that. God is going to miraculously overcome the natural laws in which the world is ordered so that Mary has a baby. One of the things that I thought about this week and I saw that is it's like video games that I used to play growing up. Anybody play Super Mario Brothers 3 in here growing up? Oh, we got some hands. Just a few people willing to admit it. Okay, I did. Uh, many hours playing Super Mario Brothers 3. Um, friends coming over. People, me and my brother played it a lot. One of the cool things about Super Mario Brothers and video games in general is that the designers of these games will oftentimes embed into the games cheat codes. Or back doors. Somebody gasp. Yes, the pastor cheated on video games. Uh, uh, yeah, so that the normal way the game works, there's ways that you can get around those things, right? So normally you may have to go through levels one, two, three, four, five, but maybe there's a back door on some level where you can skip all those and skip ahead. 
Now, what's happening there? The designers of the game build in these little backdoors and cheats so that you can violate the way the game normally works. What we see with God in these verses is that God is flexing his muscles to say, yes, I ordered the world in such a way, but I'm God. I've built in ways in this world that when I interact, I don't interact with the way everybody else interacts. I'm the designer. I'm the creator. And so when God stands before Mary to say, you're going to have a baby having never been with a man, he's flexing his muscles to say, I'm the creator. He also talks about that, that uh, Elizabeth, Mary's relative, is going to have a child. She was old and advanced in years, and miraculously God opens her, room, her womb, and she has a child. And then we read that important phrase that Gabriel speaks to Mary, verse 37, nothing is impossible with God. Now here's the point I want to make to you. When we see the power that God has before us, what we recognize is this is a God that you and I can trust with radical faith. The power of God reminds me that I can trust God with a radical trust and faith in Him. Now, when I say radical faith, it's very easy for some of us to think, well, that's like for missionaries, right? That's for pastors and and spiritual leaders. You know, I'm called to kind of sit and watch. Maybe I give some money or maybe I help out here or there, but I'm kind of just a passenger watching these things go by. The reality is every single follower of Jesus is called to radical faith. Every one of us that claim Christ is called to move beyond just an understanding about Jesus or just an agreement with certain principles about who he is, we're called to believe and trust him in such a way that we follow him. We're called to trust him in such a way that our lives begin to transform and change. Now, here's the scary thing that happens in our lives as Christians. If you know Jesus as your Savior, what happens over time is God begins to put his finger on areas of your life that need to change. Maybe it's a sin, a set of behaviors that you've made excuses for for years because your family kind of did things a certain way and you know it's wrong, but you really don't know how to break out of it. And God, through the Holy Spirit and through conviction, puts his finger on it. Maybe it's a ministry opportunity. God calls you to take a step of faith into into kingdom service where you begin to move from being a spectator watching things go by in this church, but where you begin to get on the field and invest in the lives of other people. A lot of these moments can become scary, right? And what we have to ask ourselves is this important question. Can I trust God taking these radical steps of obedience in my life? And what this passage and the greater testimony of Scripture tells us is the resounding answer is yes. Because the one I'm trusting is the sovereign creator of the universe who holds my life in this world in his hand. I can trust him. I can trust him even when I don't understand everything and how it's going to go. I think I've asked this before, but some of us are planners in here. Any planners? We like to know how everything is going to go in the end, right? Give me A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And sometimes God says, here's A, trust me with the rest. Is that just hard for me? 
That's hard sometimes to trust God at that level to say, I'm going to take a step of obedience and leave this behavior, leave this attitude, move into this ministry, and I'm going to trust God with A, B, C, D, E, F, G, because I know he holds my life in his hand. Let me ask you this question. Are you taking steps of radical obedience and faith today? Are there areas of your life where you're not taking and trusting God at his word because you're not sure that God will be there on the other side to catch you? Radical obedience that God calls us to is driven and sustained by a trust that God will be there, sovereign, powerful creator, to protect and guide us. Let me be clear. When we take radical steps of obedience and faith, that doesn't mean that God always shields me from problems. Do not listen to me say all these things and think, oh, well, Spencer said if I I trust God and, and follow him, I'll always have it easy and never have problems. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is that God sustains us through problems. God sustains us through difficulty. When I decide to follow in radical faith and obedience before him, God never leaves me or forsakes me. Let me just say this, okay, to those of you listening to me this morning. There are some of you here who the radical step, the radical step of obedience you need to take is becoming a Christian. Please, please understand, becoming a Christian is not something you're born into. It's not something that comes by virtue of you being a citizen of a certain country. Becoming a Christian is something that happens when you turn from your sin and radically say, I'm going to follow Jesus and give him my life. And so I say that to say this, when you see this is a God we can trust with radical faith, and I ask, are you trusting God with that kind of radical faith? One of the reasons I say that is because I want you to understand that for some of us, the step that we need to be taking is a step of trusting God with our lives in the first place. Crossing that line of faith, turning from our sin and crossing that line of faith is where you and I first encounter the God of the Bible. Number four, and finally, not only do we see God's love, his genius, his power, we also see God's delight. God's delight. Look at verse 38. We'll close with this. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You know, one of the mistakes that we can make as Protestants and as evangelicals is to downplay the importance Mary has in this narrative. And the reason sometimes evangelicals and Protestants do that is because we are not Catholic. Right? And we're responding to our Catholic friends and what we believe is their misunderstanding and misplaced emphasis on Mary, right? That she is worshipped in the Catholic Church, that she's venerated as a saint. And we say, we don't see that in the Bible. And so we can kind of just wholesale move Mary out of the way. And what I would just say about our Catholic friends is I think they're partially right. I don't think Mary is a saint that should be venerated and worshipped and prayed to, but I do think that she's an example that you and I need to see God is holding up for us to model our lives after. Because as a teenager, an angel has just come to her and said, you're going to have a child, though you've never been with a man, and he's going to be the fulfillment of thousands of years of prophecy. She asks one question, can you clarify this for me, how this is going to work? And then she says, great. 
let's go. I'm ready. If this is what you said is going to happen, let's do this. I want to ask you a question. This is your processing Mary's response. Do you think Mary, as a teenager, understood everything God was telling her in these verses? I don't think so, guys. I do not sense that this young lady understood everything God was saying to her. But do you know what she was doing? She was trusting the one who spoke it to her, though she didn't understand everything he was saying. You see, God's delight, what God is looking for, is a humble obedience. I think what this passage teaches us, church, is God delights in people who humble themselves before him. One of the big challenges as Americans that we've got to fight against in our lives is to reject becoming consumers in every area of our lives. We talk about identity in Christ a lot here. The primary identity most Americans most closely associate with is consumerism. We're marketed to that way in every part of our lives. We're told we should have these things, that we deserve these things. And it's easy to move from looking at vacations and life and material things and to begin to think about God that way. God's here to kind of make me happy. God's here for my happiness and my purposes and my ends. And what happens when we take on the role of consumers is we become pretty self-absorbed. One of the biggest things I deal with in marriage counseling when I talk to couples is helping them understand that it's not all about them. Because when I talk to most couples in crisis, they're saying, well, well, so-and-so, what he's the real problem. This is what he's doing. This is what he's not doing. And then, then he starts, well, this is what she's doing. This is what she's not doing. And I have to say, whoa, 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 whoa. We've got to start with you recognizing that your marriage is not about you getting something from the other person. Your marriage is about serving the other person, loving them unconditionally, whether you get anything back from them or not. I was talking to somebody just about this this past week and talking about challenges with the spouse and I just don't know if I can keep giving when I'm not getting anything back. And I said, you're right, you can't. The only way you can do that is if you've got a source of love that's unconditional and unfailing that enables you to sacrificially love other people. Tim Keller uses this example when he talks about marriage. He says it's like philanthropy. If you've got a rich millionaire philanthropist that just gives money to, to lots of organizations, when you give money to a nonprofit, you're giving to it expecting not a profit and, re, and return on your investment, right? You're giving expecting that I'm not going to get anything in return. But the only way the millionaire philanthropist can continue to give to all these charities is if they have a wad of money coming into their bank account, right? The minute that philanthropist starts to lose that chunk of money, he, can't, he or she can't keep giving, expecting no return. Marriage and relationships are no different. We have to recognize that the only way we can love others sacrificially is if we have been loved by the Creator. Real humility means I'm moving from being self-absorbed to becoming a servant. I'm moving from constantly thinking about how is this going to benefit me to how am I doing loving the other people around me? God's delight is in humble obedience, which is, this is why I make this last statement. The God that we're presented with here is the God before whom we must humble ourselves. 
The Bible's clear, church. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If I can just speak to the men in the room, women, this is not to say that you're exempt from the challenge of pride, but if I can just speak to the men in the room, guys, pride is a dangerous, dangerous thing many of us wrestle with. Because we bought the subtle lie that the reason we matter is because we can do stuff. The reason I matter is because I've got XYZ job, because I've got XYZ skills, because I've accomplished this and this and this, and that's who I am. And we take pride in those things, and we exalt ourselves, and we lift ourselves up. And I want you to know that if we're ever going to experience the grace of God, it's going to be because we repudiate our pride, and we say, no, it's not about my resume. It's not about what I've accomplished. It's about me acknowledging that without God, I've got nothing. Without Jesus Christ, I have nothing to live my life for. And all of these other things are merely an extension of what he's given me. So let me ask you this question, especially the guys in the room. Are we humbling ourselves before the Lord? Well, what does that look like? Can I give you just a real quick application point? You want to know a humble person, what a humble person looks like? Show me their prayer life, and I'll tell you if somebody's really humble. Prayer is an indicator that we need God. Every day when we drive to school, one of the things we do in the car as I'm driving Seth to school, first grader, is we pray going down that big hill on HH. You guys know what I'm talking about? You can do up to 75 miles an hour as you go down that hill if you're not careful. And that's where we pray as a family. And I ask Seth every time before we pray, Seth, why do we pray? What I'm trying to help him understand is the reason we pray is not to get things from God, though God wants to hear our requests. The primary reason we pray is because we're acknowledging our need for God. I need you. I can't live this day, another moment, without your grace and mercy in my life. And so I'll ask again, are you humbling yourself before the Lord? Is there a humility to your prayer life that says, God, I desperately, desperately need you? What I hope this morning has happened is as we've read this narrative, you and I have seen more rightly, more beautifully who God is. And so what I want to do in closing is I just want to lead you in a prayer as we think about God's love, God's genius, God's power, and God's delight. Would you bow with me and close your eyes with me for a moment in prayer? I just want you to think about those four things with me. And I just want to walk you through, just for a few moments, who God is. I want to walk you through just praying before the Lord, stilling your heart before Him, and giving thanks for these qualities we've talked about. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Just take a moment and consider the love of God. Consider right where you are for a moment that God has set his affections on us, not just by his word, not just by his power, but by giving us himself. Take a moment and give thanks to God for his great love for you and for me.
still in an attitude of prayer, take a moment, turn your attention to the genius of God's plan that we see in the manger, those spiritual dominoes moving over as the manger moves to the cross, to the resurrection, and finally to his ascension, and one day to his glorious return. Take a moment and give thanks to him that his genius plan means peace for you. in the attitude of prayer, take a moment and give thanks to God for his power. Give thanks to the God who is worthy of you trusting him with radical faith and obedience. finally this morning, give thanks for what God delights in, the humble dependence we see in Mary. Take a moment and give thanks to the God who shows us what his favor rests upon, humble dependence on him. Father God, as we close this service together, I pray for anyone here who maybe for the first time some things are becoming clear about the gospel, about Jesus and what he's done for them. I pray that you would show people that they're not going to find peace, a real joy, a real love apart from you. God, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, that you'd open the eyes of their heart, that they would repent of their sins and trust Jesus, that he died for them, that he rose again to purchase forgiveness for them. Fathers, we go throughout the rest of this day and maybe have a meal, maybe spend time giving thanks for family and friends as we celebrate Christmas. Would you help us most of all to be thankful for what Christmas tells us about you and who you are and how great and glorious your mercy and grace is towards us. Would you help this church never get over how good you are to us? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand with us, church, and sing a final song of response?